welcome to another extra special, extra fantastic Final Fantasy X episode of Normandy FM. As always, I'm, I'm one of your co-hosts, Eric Van Allen, alongside Kenneth Shepard. Ken, it's been too long. It Ken, is. I, if, I feel like we every episode of the Final Fantasy X season so far, we have to like reacclimate ourselves to doing this because it feels like it's been so long since we were last year. It's weird because we go in in spurts and bursts, and and then we go long times without talking to each other. the the new The new schedule is weird to acclimate. That's not to. true. You and I talk to each other every day. Well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, like in a professional setting. Trust me, the people at home don't want to hear the way we talk every day. Um, but joining us today to talk, as she does, however day, as she does any day. Is Ashley O. Ashley, how you doing? I'm doing very well. How you doing? I, I'm doing all right. I'm ready to talk about how much I hate the Thunder Planes, <laughs> how much <laughs> I deeply, <laughs> deeply hate the Thunder Planes, uh, and then also how much I deeply hate Seymour, who's just a bad man. He's a bad, bad man. We're finally in the the part of this game where we can start saying that uh, Seymour, bad man, does bad things. <laughs> I find it weird that his name is Seymour because once he walks into a room, like you think he's going to have like a totally crazy name like the other squad. <laughs> no, but it's it's just Seymour. And you're like, why is that <laughs> your name? It's the weirdest I thing. Mean, like it, all the characters have like, it's kind of like not necessarily like real world quote unquote names. And then there's like one person's like Lulu. That's a normal name compared to like Yuna, Titus and everybody else. Like, you get these, like, one or two, like, outstanding characters that have, like, a seemingly real-world name. I mean, I think... Yeah, it's... Oh, it's... sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say it's the idea of having a normal person name. It's like when you meet a cat and its name isn't, like, you know, Whiskers or something like that, but it's, like, Frederick, you know? <laughs> it's, like, a really jarring moment where you're like, oh, there's something up with this cat. There's something weird about this cat. <laughs> Yeah, a friend of mine had a cat named Steve, and he would talk about <laughs> Steve like in a disparaging way, and I thought it was just like his asshole roommate, but I think one time he was just like, God, like, you know, like, Steve shit on the floor again, or whatever, and it was like, who do you live with? He's like, oh, that's that's my cat. Hmm. <laughs> Clarify that first before you speak of shitting on your floor. <laughs> shitting on yeah. Oh, before we get started with the content for this week, uh, Ashley, tell us a little bit, tell, tell the listeners at home a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, and, and how you got into Final Fantasy. Oh, gosh. Um, whoa, how did I get into Final Fantasy? It was kind of an accident as you, uh, <laughs> uh, my cousin was playing it, but shortly before I had, you know, actually understood what he was playing. This was around the time when video game commercials were still coming out. Um, mm. or they were like not a thing. I mean, they're kind of a thing now, but when I saw, um, Final Fantasy, I saw seven and eight on TV. I was like, what in the hell is that? Everyone looks so smooth <laughs> and cool. That applies only to the latter, not to seven, uh, cause they were still very <laughs> blocky, but I still thought it was cool. Um, and then, uh, <laughs> my great relationship with Blockbuster Video and me renting Final Fantasy eight over and over, uh, helped immensely jumpstart my Final Fantasy obsession, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, but yeah, that's me and my history. But in terms of me as a person, um, 
I was at like Polygon and GameSpot and kind of bounced around for a while. Um, did some social media stuff, did some podcast stuff. Now just shit post online. That's really it. Can't really tell That's you. That's the way to live it. Much than that. <laughs> it's the way to live online is to just forego any pretense of being professional and just be like, I'm going to shit post on here. It's it's what's best. I think it has backfired in my case, I feel like, because every time I look at it, I'm like, there is no way. You have to stop. If you want a job, you have to stop it. Um, but I don't know. Maybe my tweets are not that bad, and I think that they're terrible. They're just bad jokes. <laughs> you just got to find the place that accepts you for who you are. That's that's the important part is the, the place that will accept you for shit posting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, one last question we ask every guest before we start on the content of this episode, which is Jose Moonflow Guado Salon. Basically, we're we're getting from the Jose Temple over to Makalania and all the drama and such that ensues in the in-between. Uh Ashley, how do you pronounce the name of the uh, protagonist of this game? Oh, Titus. But uh, that's because I Thank feel you. like I was almost like beaten into submission. You know, like <laughs> initially. Hey, welcome to the club. <laughs> you know, it seemed right that it was Titus to me because when it came out, you know, the cover, it's him in the water with a sword mm-hmm. with water mm-hmm. in it. So mm-hmm. it seems mm-hmm. natural that his name would be Titus, however, it is absolutely not. And um, I was crushed to find out that was not the official way to say his name. Mm-hmm. That that they're officially wrong. You know, it's it's mm. it's a bummer every time. That's okay. You know, I'll think about it. I'll be sad. Then I'll go to Target and pick up some teed pods to, <laughs> to toss into my laundry. <laughs> oh, uh, anyways, Titus is up for a very long week this week because oh god i just clicked the wrong button okay (laughs) there we go we're still good um i'm pulling up the notes uh we're we're heading into the jose temple we got you know we're we're out of operation mien we're out of the the horrors of war and sin killing everyone and we kind of just have to go back to doing the pilgrimage uh and that starts with heading on into the temple which by the way just if you walk around and talk to people here it is like jarring it's dark uh you can talk to the the crusaders survivor either luzu or gata depending on uh you know whoever ended up surviving the operation and mm. they are just broken up yep. and the 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 gata one is you know rough the luzu one if you've ever seen it oh boy um that one hurts a little bit mm. that that one is the one I watched and was like, cool, never picking Blue Zoo again. <laughs> um, but even in the beds inside the temple and stuff like that, uh, there are just soldiers gathered around who are just wounded and, you know, barely clinging on or, or there, there are still even dead bodies in the temple and stuff. And it's, I, I think maybe just, you know, the age I played this, I wasn't really caring about that stuff or I wasn't really like, you know, ruminating on that stuff or, you know, I was just like, cool, that, that thing's over time to move on to the next temple. But now here I'm just like, Oh, this game is dark. <laughs> <laughs> this game is darker than I remember. Right. Uh, 
how how do you feel about this this like pre temple area again? I think what was most like most stuck out to me is that everyone is really kind of buying into what Oren kind of alluded to last episode is that like now mm-hmm. everyone thinks that like the people that you know turned against Gavin and all of this they have been wiped out and that was their punishment and I I think it was just like painful to see like just how effectively that kind of works and like how that um you know these people when they've been you know conditioned in all the ways that they have to believe one thing will latch on to that explanation because it's simple and it like kind of allows them to like comfortably you know stick with the same worldview that they've been taught for all this time basically indoctrinated into and that was just like my takeaway with a lot of the people um like like when we're talking about like, the, the chocobo knights uh are there as well and like they basically say, like, yeah, this is this is our punishment for turning our back on everything that Yevon has taught us. And, yeah, it's just kind of fucked up. <laughs> Ashley, you got you got feelings on, on the whole Yevon situation, the whole, like, crusaders and, and tragedy and stuff that, that happened in, in Operation Mian and, and the, the high road? Um, I, th- I have to agree with you that I think in retrospect... You know, playing it as a teen, yeah, you're just like, oh, good, okay, like, glad that area or whatever is out of the way. Like, sure, mm-hmm. people are upset. But, yeah, I think when you look back on it when you're older, you're like, mm. this is rough. People just mm. watch their friends die. They are broken mm-hmm. on the road. I remember there are, like, people just laying down in the road, just dejected. Mm. Um, that was a rough area, too, just in terms of just combat god i remember just Mm. barely getting out of that and desperately Mm -hmm. needing to heal but um i i I don't know it's kind of weird because that whole struggle with yevin and the crusaders and that whole thing is kind of like an i don't know it's just a reoccurring theme you know what i mean it never really Mm -hmm. gets old like oh that's a pretty dated concept like it's it's just like kind of always there um yeah. But I guess it's a little bit, yeah, weirder if you, you know, are old enough to kind of look at the nuances of why that is such a painful thing to put in what is otherwise marketed as this, like, fun, flashy video game. Mm. There there was a moment where it's it's after the temple and you're on the road to uh, the Moonflow Crossing where you see two soldiers on the ground. I went to go talk to them. And one of them is is lying on the ground. The other one's standing next to them. And the soldier says something like, "Okay, we'll we'll wait here for a little bit. You know, take a load off. We we came here together. Like we we left our home to come to this operation together. We are going back home together. And I don't know why, but that one just really messed me up. <laughs> like just that that they they're going through this horrible thing, and clearly like one of them has been." horribly injured in some way and and they're both just kind of going back home they're like we we left together we're coming back together and i was like damn this just really hit in a way for me um it's i i think this is a game that again you hear a lot of discussion about the main plot and especially like yada 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 hallway simulator whatever and this definitely is a section of the game where the hallway feels very apparent and very obvious. Mm. Uh, but it's also a section where I feel you start gaining so much more out of it. If you are stopping to talk to people along the way, because it's, you know, it's not just 
a pilgrimage game where you are going on these travels, but you're getting to talk to people and learn about the journeys that they make and how events in the world are affecting them as you continue onward. You, you have all these NPCs that are recurring throughout this section, throughout later sections like the Chocobo Nights and um, Shalinda will be here at some point. Um, there's uh, Master... Oh, I forget his name. Master Micah? No, no, that's the bad guy. Um, the the old scholar, the 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 dude who tells you stuff about things. Come on, Ken, you I, know this. If I knew as soon as you asked me, I was gonna like blank on his name. It's, I I'm looking it up. I I'm it's it's like it's like me me and no no um it's Mikan. Mikan, there we go. We got there. <laughs> Uh, the, he starts showing up too and I felt really bad because at several points you can stop and talk to him and he'll be like really excited he'll be like can I tell you things about this stuff and you can say no and he's just like oh okay oh. <laughs> and I'm like oh no like tell me about the the fireflies please I want to know teach me <laughs> Titus is dumb he needs to learn things <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's, I really like the stuff in this game, uh, especially in this section where it's completely optional. You can walk by so much of it, but it just adds to building up what this world is. And we get to build up the world even more because we meet another summoner. Uh, we meet Isaru and his brothers slash guardians, Pache and Maroda, who are also pilgrimaging, uh, at this point, I am kind of wondering how many summoners are there in mm-hmm. Spira? Because, you know, one or two is one thing, but I think we're up to three now yeah. in terms of summoners that we've run into. And that's a lot. <laughs> it just seems like a lot. I feel like there are a lot. Uh, I feel like the implication is that there are quite a lot of them around. I don't know if we meet. I've always imagined it like you know, more than just a handful. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know what a good of, number is. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of always thought of it, I mean, it's a weird comparison to me, but, like, similar to how, like, Pokemon trainers in the Pokemon world, like, like several of them go out, like, and at one point, and they have all these different places that they originate from, and we just happen to meet some of them on the way, like, just because our, our pathways line up, whereas somebody might, like, be starting... Like, has started around the same time as unit in Jose or in Makalania or somewhere else. And everyone's just kind of, like, going on different paths to get to the same place. And we, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know that they ever, like, said how many are, there are. But um, I honestly don't know that I consider three to be that much. Because I, I do think there are probably... I mean, this isn't exactly... I mean, we don't know at this point in the game. This isn't something that people would necessarily volunteer to do frequently i don't think like i think when people know the stakes of this they're like that that doesn't sound like an appealing job for a lot of people so three feels like it, it might feel like a lot but it also kind of just doesn't to me like it, it feels like th- that if it was something that like you know everybody wanted to do we'd be seeing more than that i mean the the other aspect of this is that uh, and, and this might be getting ahead of ourselves, but I wanted to mention it here as we're talking about the number of summoners. But eventually we start to hear rumors that summoners are disappearing across Spira. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
that was the moment where I was like, wait, what do you mean like summoners are disappearing? Plural. And we know it's yeah. not we and we know it's not the the two it's it's not Donna, it's not Isaru, because we see them. <laughs> and so uh who uh, you know, who are all these summoners disappearing enough that you know, it, it's it's making the news. <laughs> it's <laughs> spreading by word of mouth. And on top of that, and, and maybe this is just a really stray thought, but I was thinking about with all these summoners in play, what do you do if, you know, when, when Sin is defeated and you've got 10 years of calm, do you just, like, call it quits at that point? Like, do you just, like, kick your feet up and say, like, okay, well, didn't make it in this draft guess I'll wait for the next one like that's uh well, that's there's some people that did not defeat sin that we have um met at this point that are summoners and i think they just went on to do other things in the meantime and maybe like when the column is over that they make that decision like do i try again or do i continue with the life that i have laid for myself in the past 10 years or so well oh my the, the person the person we find that has you know failed to defeat sin i feel like there's a different implication there that we will we will gradually learn about I, i'm saying like do we do we meet any summoners that were just like yeah you know I, w- I wasn't fast enough somebody else beats in and so now i'm just a carpenter i mean honestly i would love a game that follows a summoner who failed to make the pilgrimage mm. who ends up running a successful noodle shop and then the calm <laughs> yeah. comes to an end and they're like oh man like every this noodle shop is it's like crazy famous. You're making so much money <laughs> and you're just like, oh, I could go back, but do I risk this new life I've made for myself as a master noodle maker? I mean, that's tough. No. That sucks, who, though. Who Imagine just like handing it off, be like, sorry, I just, I got to go on this pilgrimage. It's been 10 years. I got to leave. <laughs> do you Unexplored do- territory, seems like. Yeah. And can you still summon even if, you know, like, like do summons exist outside of like during the calm and all that? Can a summoner just be like, man, I, I really don't want to walk <gasps> to work today. Come down, veil four, <laughs> fly me to work. Yes. Let's go. Why uh, not? There are no rules. Once they get there, I mean, they're there. You can kind of tell them to do whatever mm. you want, kind of. Ixion. Ixion shows up and is like, oh, I got to pull your carriage again. <laughs> I'm a glorious beast of thunder. <laughs> do you think, um, yeah, do you think the summons ever get tired in that, you know, calm period where, like, they're not totally needed and they're only summoned for the most mundane things for just 10 years? <laughs> and they're like, God, here it comes, going back to delivering packages again. <laughs> what if you're an Aeon and your summoner is just fucking insufferable? <laughs> like, just awful to be around. Oh, no. That's even worse. <laughs> like, th- this is not what I turned to stone for. Gosh. Uh, I, w- I was imagining, like, they-, they all have to get side jobs and stuff. So you're just, your DoorDash driver, Ifrit, is, no! <laughs> is 10 minutes away. <laughs> oh. Oh. But, yeah, yeah. So summoners, you know rich rich lives potentially that that could be further explored uh in other media if you want to write that that alt fic you know get on that i'm obvious i am already plotting it out (laughs) i have like three different storylines going on excellent um anyways so after talking to isaru and and they start to take off that's when 
Isaru's guardians, uh, his brothers, kind of clue us in a little bit on some of the rumors that have been going around of disappearing summoners. Um, and then we head in and we do a cloister of trials, and it's it's a cloister of trials. I still, again, feel like these are incredibly straightforward in ways that I had forgotten. Uh, I did have to look up a guide to remember how to do the destruction sphere here, but mm. uh, and and also I do remember I, I knew it because I've done this cloister so many times now. But I remember the first time I was doing this cloister, the whole pushing the pedestal underneath the other other mm. pedestal to get the charged orb and stuff that was just esoteric like it was just i i don't know how i was supposed to intuit that mm. <laughs> as a player um or, or like pushing the pedestal into the the lightning room to jump across it and stuff there yeah. there was some weird mm. stuff in this section that i i don't know how a player was supposed to naturally intuit right. that they were the solutions it's at, i think it's at this point where they start introducing these like very specific like new mechanics to the cloister trials that they don't bother to let you know like explicitly about mm -hmm. and they only apply for like one of the trials so it's not it's not knowledge you can use in the next one and a lot of that sort of basic knowledge is only going to get at you so far that like you know that we've learned mm -hmm. at this point because i'm thinking forward to like the makalania one which is also annoying mm -hmm. and the vavel one which is like a nightmare that oh, i still Bevel. remember uh to this day <laughs> where and i think like even even so like pushing it into that that hole so like it would levitate and you could just jump across like that was something that I, just, I just happened to remember from having played this game already um mm -hmm. again like i don't know how i would have I, I that would probably be like a trial and everything like pushing it to every side of the room to see if it would do something uh, that would have probably have to have done at back then it's also so weird because you know you're talking about pushing the thing and it kind of floats and you can jump on it since when do electrical currents make mm -hmm. things float I, I just, it's not even a thing that's like, oh, I wouldn't, because I think of, you know, like Zelda dungeons where I got frustrated, you know, very early on because I was like, how the hell was I supposed to figure that out? But <laughs> in this case, it's like, it's literally how nature works. Thunder, right. lightning doesn't make stuff float. Why would I push that in there? Especially something made of stone. It's like not a conductor. It's just, it's useless, technically, but, you know, I guess in the cool magic electricity, um, <laughs> you can yeah. float, I guess. Because, like, a lot of the times that like, these fantasy, like, settings do, like, magic and stuff, there's some sort of, like, real-world element that, like, we as people that don't live in that world can usually draw from, like, the elements of, like, weaknesses and stuff in, in this, like, you know, fire weakens ice like that makes sense to us it's like that is how the elements of those things work mm -hmm. and then it's like okay we're gonna just like introduce this fake science to you that you're gonna have to suddenly find out when you push this down a hole <laughs> you know i just end up feeling bad for the the poor priest that's got to go in there after someone's beaten the cloister of trials and reset the whole thing mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> They're going like, why did we, why did we make this a thing that you have to hop across the lightning pool to get to the thing? And now I have to push these pedestals around, put all these orbs back in the right place. I have to undestroy this wall <laughs> while he's going in there with all this mortar and stuff. Like, why do we keep having walls that blow up? I, uh, I feel really bad for them. You know, I guess it gives them something to do because I don't know what else you do when you're just hanging out at these temples other than just like 
sing the the hymn of the faith all day uh but you know it's it, it, it's a tough life being the guy that's got to repair all that stuff <laughs> um we head into the cloister or i guess not the cloister but the actual chamber and uh yuna goes in to start praying for for ixion and who else shows up but donna and bartello of course uh more summoners hanging out hanging around we do find out that Bartello is a huge fan of Sir Oren, which immediately made me love him. Mm. Like, just I, the second he does his muscle pose and is like, "Can I shake your hand?" It's <laughs> like, "Oh my god, I love this guy." <laughs> um, and then Donna, everyone gives Donna some grief for basically insulting Sir Oren, and I guess you know it reminds you that Oren is kind of a celebrity. In mm-hmm. Spira, uh, which and is he, again, and he was also weird. like very sweet. Like he was, like, it was one of the n- only moments, other I guess, other than like to Yuna, where he was like nice to somebody, because like he shook his hand, and it was like, oh, Oren has a heart, and it makes me happy. Oren has a lot of good moments in this section. I was really, I was mm-hmm. really digging Oren throughout this whole uh, section that we played for this part. Um, his favorite moment is, is even coming up in the notes, uh, but. Yeah, so they they do all that, and Yuna comes out and is you know kind of stumbling and and having trouble standing up. It's it's interesting to see that it's taking her less and less time to mm. like connect with the faith, uh, because obviously on Besage she had been in there for a couple days, I think, uh, and Kilika. I think it takes her a while. The implication is that it takes you know like a a, a chunk of the day. But here she basically like walks in, you know, says, I'll take one Ixion, please. And then walks back out in the time it takes everyone to have a short conversation. So it's it's cool. But she stumbles a little bit and Donna like jumps on that, just bites on that and says, you know, oh, you're the world must be different when you're the daughter of Lord Brasca and you get to be, you know, this this person, this you have everything going for you and all these guardians and stuff. Uh, and Yuna kind of pushes back and is like, you know, she's doing this on her own. And Donna delivers a really devastating line. Uh, Your guardians won't be able to protect you when the time comes. And that is, ooh, if you've played and finished this game before and you are now playing it again, that line hits. Mm-hmm. That, ooh, it was barbed. Um, I, I, I'm liking what Donna is as a character as as like someone who is showing kind of what Yuna's own personal shortcomings can be when, you know and and this is really a section where we get to look at Yuna as a character mm-hmm. and examine you know all her strengths and all her faults and really start to examine who she is and and who she's becoming over the course of this pilgrimage and i do think having a character that constantly interrogates like, Oh, you have everything going for you. You are the daughter of the hero summoner. You have all these guardians. Sir Oren is, you know, here to be your guardian. Like you get the a team and everything. Everyone loves you. And Donna is out here just trying to get by day to day. Um, that's, 
I, I like the kind of foil that Donna plays here. I think she, th- it's starting to work very well in, in that way where before it seemed kind of like, like cartoonish a little bit like, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm the mean summoner and I'm here to, to make Yuna feel bad. So like Yuna has a rival or whatever, but now she's actually playing a part in helping Yuna characterize herself. So, yeah. um, I don't know, Ken, do you like Donna at this point? Yeah, I think I think like you said, this is the point where like her meanness is starting to just like actually like have a purpose as opposed to just being this thing that feels like catty mean girl bullshit. And um, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it speaks to a way that like she. We don't really meet a lot of people that have any pushback against Yuna. Like not not that Yuna does anything to like merit pushback per se, but just like anyone that isn't sort of like. All, all on board with what Yuna's doing and how she's doing it and what it means for her to do these things. So Donna is interesting in that way that there is, like, she's showing, like, what dissent looks like amongst summoners and, like, the ways they can... the different ways they can go about doing things, even though they are essentially, like, working towards the same goal. And, yeah, this, this was a point where, like, there were points where, like, she was, you know... Like, there was even, like, a, the humbling moment for her when everyone was kind of like, you know, you came in here, you know... Guns blazing, but you in the midst of the, this, you have disrespected like you know somebody that is a hero to most people in Spira, and I think like at that point, that kind of comes, has has to be a moment for her to be like, I can't just kind of be like shooting from the hip at everything that bothers me, and I need to like mm-hmm. actually say what I'm feeling about these things as opposed to simply just being snarky and rude and mean. Any thoughts on 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 Donna Ashley? Um, I agree with you in that. Uh... I think that I start to actually like her a little bit more, I think, now that um, we're talking about it a bit. Because, of course, mm. the first time around, it's so easy, I think, at the time to yeah characterize her as this sort of mean summoner. But I, I think that, you know, that line, too, about her saying that the world must look different, um, mm. I feel like is actually a pretty cutting, like, social commentary like in their society of like well right. mm-hmm. you know while the rest of us are kind of scrounging like you, you've i mean she points out yuna's privilege which hasn't really been highlighted before like mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. she grew up in besaid like everybody loves her and everything was pretty rosy so like with no other comparison you're like oh yeah sure whatever but then now you know you kind of take a step back and you have this bigger setting and i think it's so easy yeah because she has this like celebrity team of guardians right. her dad is famous which means she had like a pretty easy privileged like almost you know she was like in a position where people in the village like revered her you know like she's never mm. had to really know any type of opposition or hardship and right. i think it's mm. really hard for i mean i guess for anybody who's you know just gone through some shit to see that and be like wow must be nice, which is like exactly mm. what Donna is saying, and I totally get mm-hmm. that. Um, mm. But yeah, you don't like see a ton about kind of their social class commentary, but I feel like that kind of brought up a little detail that brought to light, like, oh, well, maybe you should check your privilege. And Yuna's just kind of like, right. what? what? Like, I don't, I don't know what you're because she is pretty naive still, and I think like her privilege mm-hmm. sort of contributes to her naivete obviously and right i think like yeah like you said it makes her sort of reevaluate or look at herself again but in terms of donna like i think that was such a great like you said a great foil to mm. a character that can be very easily just 
kind of written off as like, yeah, she's like very sweet and caring. And like, that's kind of it. You just stop there, but you don't really think beyond that. Like, well, in ways that that benefits her, it's also a little bit of her downfall in a way. It's like a blind spot for her. And it's, Mm -hmm. I think kind of distressing too, because like, there's nothing she can really do about that herself, at least at the time. But, um, and especially not, you know, when she says your guardians won't be able to protect you. So it's like, that's also another thing of like, it doesn't matter who you are, what your status is. The outcome is going to be the same for all of us, no matter what. And I think like her, Donna, meaning like kind of checking Yuna with that is pretty interesting. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, and up to this point, like Yuna's only really ever talked about like her relationship to her father as like, well, like an honor, like to be honored, it's like an honor for her to have come from such a lineage but also like she does talk about that as sort of this like weight on her shoulders like that she has to live up to something where like like we've been saying like she might not even realize the point like yes that is a weight that she bears but she also doesn't realize how that has helped her in ways that mm-hmm. a lot of these other, pe- other people yeah. they're doing the same thing like they're trying to defeat sin that there, there are struggles that they are having to go through that she has not even ever really had to consider yeah yeah and and i think especially as we get near the end of this section, it circles back around to that exact point that Yuna is naive. Yuna is, and also Yuna, I feel like even starts to internalize some of this and wants to put even more on her own shoulders and not ask for help, not ask for assistance. Uh, And I think it becomes a chip on her shoulder at this point that we will see crop back up later. But, uh, after we have our little confrontation, we, we take a nap and wake up the next day. And this is legitimately a, a favorite scene of mine. It's so fun because everyone, all the guardians are outside waiting for Yuna to, uh, to wake up and get ready to go. And you can tell it's kind of like late morning. You know, everyone's up and ready to go. You greet the sun and kind of tap in their toes. And uh, eventually you can just run into the temple and go see it, it, I, I like that there's no objective marker there's no big pinging thing you just kind of have to look around and be like oh hey there's Yuna Yuna's sleeping over there on that bed and when, when you go try to like talk to her or talk to the priest that's next to her um, they basically tell you that Yuna had been up all night helping the wounded um, and, and assisting with all the people that were there in the temple. And then she wakes up and starts freaking out because she realizes that she has slept in and has kept everyone waiting. And so she starts panicking and running around the room, trying to pack and get ready to go. And as you go back outside, she's just apologizing to everyone and going, sorry, sorry, sorry. And they all start teasing her about her bedhead and, and like, she was like, why didn't you try to wake me? And Lulu makes a joke about, oh, we were going to, but then all that snoring, uh, I don't think you heard it. <laughs> and <laughs> and poor Yuna is running around and, and, you know, looking to every one of the guardians and being like, come on, you know, back me up here. Like, and eventually goes to Sir Oren and <laughs> he, he chuckles and says, once Lady Yuna fixes her hair, we leave. And that is... I, I really want to like shout out the voice acting in this part, mm-hmm. especially um, you know Oren and Lulu. Uh, really, just sell this moment as them all sharing a laugh and a little bit of like just fun and joy 
in a time where feels like we haven't had that in a hot minute. Mm. You know, it's it, it it got a genuine laugh out of me. I was like, yeah. wow, he th- this is this is funny. I, I dig this. And mm. um, and then, of course, narrator Titus comes in and is like, after all that time, I realized that. I was the only one laughing or something like that. It's like, God. this this is what kept them going. And, and I was just like, okay, narrator Titus, like really bring <laughs> down the mood. Like, just let, let the moment breathe, my dude. Like, <laughs> calm down. Um, but yeah, I love this moment. Ken, I can tell from your notes that you do too. Yeah, it was just, it was very sweet. And like, like you were saying, um, again, like, it makes me appreciate, like, I feel like I have to remind myself that the voice acting in this game is actually pretty fucking good. Because I feel mm-hmm. like it's, it's one of those things that we talked about a lot on this season. Is it like so distant from something like everything becomes a meme. So everyone talk, talks about the laugh scene and then like removes context from that to say that mm-hmm. the voice acting in this game is bad. When actually like, no, it's still pretty fucking good. Um, and, you know, like you said, this is just one of those points where you realize that like the ra- like the emotional range of this cast as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really solid. Really good. Really great scene. Really like it. it got a laugh out of me too and made me feel all warm and fuzzy for a second yeah it's it's just it's chill it's fun it's nice and we get back on the road um you know we see the chocobo knights we see shalinda again um who just can't help but say told you so mm. um man shalinda's a complicated character <laughs> She's, um, yeah um and we see b-ron and yankee <laughs> <laughs> are just doing their little knee padding idol animation and laughing at Kimari and being like, haha, summoners are disappearing. Kimari lost his horn. Now he's going to lose his summoner. <laughs> I, I know they're supposed to be jerks, but I also kind of love them. Like B Ron and Yankee are just kind of fun every time they show up. And, uh, you know, it's, it, there, there is an aspect of like, yeah, here's here's Kimari's, you know, personal conflict that we're going to have to deal with eventually. Waka has a really weird line where he says something like, let Ronso deal with Ronso problems. And I was like, oh, but yeah, this is also the section where Waka goes from uh, just being paranoid racist to being actual racist, <laughs> <laughs> like saying racist things racist. So uh, this, you know, Waka's just gearing up at this point. Um, but yeah, I, I like B-Ron and Yankee because they're, they're just, I don't know. There's something about the way they just take little digs and it, it is, it is very much like older brother, little brother sort of situation. You know, you've seen that trope a lot where like, there's the, the, the cocky older brother and the little brother who's kind of living in the shadow and, and that's where Kimari kind of fits in into that dynamic and uh, it, it gives him, you know, a good thing to eventually overcome and assert his own sense of self and outside of the Ronzo clan, outside of doing all that stuff. But um, yeah, just, I don't know. There's something I, I just, I just like them. They're endearing to me <laughs> of, of all the, the running antagonists we have in this. They're, you know, they're endearing. And they also remind me that I need to spend sphere grid points on Kimari. So yeah, he will eventually be strong. That's something I keep thinking about. Cause I, I have, I'm still not using him. Like I still don't have like a time <laughs> where he is useful to me 
just like have in my party frequently. I love this so much because honestly, everyone I speak to who has played this game never uses Kimari. And he has no part. Like he doesn't have like a function like everybody yeah. else. It just kind of sucks too because I will try to. And this is what I do, unfortunately, in RPGs where like I need everyone to be like the same level, roughly. I don't like mm-hmm. letting just one person fall to the wayside. And God knows I have tried with Kimari. I mean, I've spent sphere grade time and he still is so weak. Do they just mm. make him like that? Or I don't understand. And I feel like every Final Fantasy has like a Kimari, in my opinion. Mm. But mm. he is so more so with everyone because everyone's like, oh, I, I never use him. And then, you know, if you ever have like a one-on-one fight with him, my gosh, that was painful. Yeah, if, if, if it kind of feels to me like they had, like, you know, they had the battle system that it did, and they had, like, the types of enemies that they would have in this game that really accommodated about six, like, party members, like, pretty mm. evenly, and then there was just this seventh character that they had that they were, like, didn't really have a place for, but they'd already, like, kind of made the made the story, made the the build that I guess you're also supposed to have with him if you kind of do the regular sphere grid. It just it doesn't feel like the game... Is like it, it, it almost feels like it doesn't serve him like as a party member, and that's just kind of always that has been like a recurring theme every time I've played this game. I'm just like I don't really have points where it is more useful for me to have Kamari than it is to have somebody else on the field at, this, at any, any given point, really. Yeah, I usually the only time I will bring Kamari in for more than just you know lanceting something is I will bring him in if I'm just kind of in all-out attack mode, because he does hit a little bit harder than Waka does on most of, like, the armored enemies and stuff. And so if I have Titus and Orin, you know, hitting this big armored enemy, like the Iron Giants we fight in the mm. Thunder Plains and all that, then, you know, Kimari comes in and he can do some damage. But I... Like, Kimari, so I've been taking him up through Titus's sphere grid because I feel like that one's a pretty natural one to take him Mm -hmm. into uh, from the start. And he's not even at the point yet where he has haste. And, like, that would be the other reason I would bring him in is to quickly haste everyone or not have to waste a turn having Titus haste himself or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it's... I, I, I don't know. Still struggling to find a place for Kimari. And letting him idle in in spots where oh you know his next one is an ability sphere and i need to grind for more ability spheres but you know it's he's not the most critical one because i'm learning level two magic with lulu and mm-hmm. i'm learning like good attacks with Orin and titus and stuff so better to just use that elsewhere and now kimari's just sitting there with like 12 unspent <laughs> sphere grid <laughs> Points. Oh my god! I should probably let him level up at some point. <laughs> um, we also run into Belgamine, uh, who I still lost to. Same. At this point, I just think I'm bad at this game. <laughs> it's still like I I can't figure out how to beat her. Like if if the way the fights are constructed do not feel like they are meant to be won. I know that they are. I know that you can beat her. I just have not found like the order of attacks I need to do to make it work. And I've even come in with, like, a full uh, overdrive, like, or, or close mm-hmm. to full overdrive. So, like, I was like, okay, that's going to be the thing that probably takes out uh, her Ixion. And it did not. And I just kind of, I, I resigned myself to it. I was just like, I I know this is not, like, plot critical for me to beat her. I just need to keep talking to her. So, yeah, I accepted that I will not beat her. So, 
it it is what it is. Well, we'll YouTube the scenes and and check those out. But yeah, no, it's do not expect us to become master summoners. All right, we are we are passing the <laughs> test. We are not acing the test. Um, and we do so here. We learn kind of one half of the full thing that we we start picking up in this section, which is learning abilities. So. Uh, after Belgamine, we get the ability to teach our Aeons new abilities by feeding them items, uh, which is useful because at this point my backpack is overflowing with items I just don't use. Mm. Uh, and later on, after we meet a certain character, we'll also get the ability to customize our equipment with items as well. And this is an aspect of the game that I never really spent much time with. Yeah. I would like to try and spend more time with it this time around just because I'm interested to see if there is cool stuff you can do there. But for the most part, I don't even use summons all that much. So mm. that was the weird part was uh, outside of a couple fights in the Moonflow area where I had to fight the Lord Ochu boss again, which is a really funny moment. The first time you random encounter into in Ochu and, uh, I had Titus and Lulu in my party and Titus said something like again <laughs> and, and Lulu's like, just think of it as training or whatever. And, uh, I like that Titus acknowledges that this boss character that you fought earlier in the game is now a regular enemy. And I like it in general when RPGs do that. I think that's fun. It's yeah. a way to show, you know, how far you've come power level wise. Right. So, um, but yeah, it's, I, I don't really use the summons in combat all that much. I, I feel like you don't have to outside of very specific plot moments. So they feel like something I use for bosses more than anything else. And yeah. it's not even a matter of like, I need to, it's just like, this is a expediency thing. Like they, cause I mean, like, like we said, however many episodes ago, like the aliens in this game aren't like they, they are powerful, but they're not as powerful as like they appear plot wise. If that makes sense. Like, they they are like these glass cannons that are like fairly slow and, um, but can deal like l large bursts of damage when you actually do use them. But uh, yeah, they're not like any they're not really a uh, pillar of like my strategy, generally. Mm -hmm. My strategy is just Orin slap things and Lulu <laughs> do magic. Lulu's magic was just destroying enemies in this section for me, mm -hmm. like just absolutely annihilating them. Um. Anyways, after this, we get to the moon flow and we get to see the lake where fireflies gather. Um, and they're all really amazed by it. And someone notes that when it becomes nighttime, it looks like the, the lake is made of stars. And obviously, Titus is like, oh, let's wait. And they're like, nah. Uh, and then he says, okay, but once we beat Sin, we're coming back. And then we get the most awkward quiet mm -hmm. of the game <laughs> as literally everyone is like, uh, yeah, sure, sure, Titus. Yeah, sounds great. We'll do that. And yeah, this is the part where I'm just going, someone freaking tell him already. Like, it's getting painful. It's getting difficult to watch. It just feels awkward. I don't know. It's... We, we try to keep this relatively spoiler-free in terms of where we're at in the game and all that, so we're not going to say anything, but Ashley, I, I'm interested to hear like what your thoughts are on like the not-telling-Tetis aspect of this <laughs> plot. I, I feel like it's very much 
the same energy of like don't tell the kid about the thing because he will mm. just freak out in the restaurant and we are in public just keep it from mm. him um but yeah i mean i i think like it's the the painful awkwardness tips off a lot of people like oh um that's very awkward because there's that implication that they're not coming back however to go back to my uh fic idea they could come back if they're you know working at a noodle shop they're not guardians anymore mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. some people but um it's it, it was pretty awkward i mean there is an open secret and i feel like like you said it's just like please at this point, maybe we should just tell him so we avoid any more awkward scenarios. It becomes such a big thing, too, once we get to Guado Salam and things start happening. Like, there is an aspect of a certain debate or decision that it seems like everyone else is fully aware of the implications, but Titus is not, and it just results in a lot of awkwardness. And so, yeah, at, at some point, I was just like, come on, someone, someone... Someone tell him. Oh, God. Uh, it's going to be so many more episodes until they do tell him. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it, we, we keep going after the awkward silence and we get to uh, the shoe puffs. We're going to ride the shoe puffs. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I love the shoe puffs. Big, big shoe puff. Um, we, we get a lot of really fun side discussions with some of our companions at, at this point. Uh, we can hear a story from Yuna about how years ago she rode on the shoe puffs and jumped into the, fell into the water accidentally and the shoe puff scooped her up and put her back in. And the, so then she just kept trying to jump back into the water. Uh, and Yuna makes a comment that was like, Kamari is standing next to her. She's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was making it difficult for you. And Kamari was like, Yuna happy. It's it's all good. <laughs> like, it, which, first of all, yeah, first of all, that gives you, like, a sense of how long Kamari has, you know, not just been a guardian, but, like, watching over Yuna mm -hmm. in some way. Um and and also yeah it's 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 a neat little moment and i'm glad that now that we're we're through the thing of oh kimari talked and all that like now kimari is actually talking a lot and it's fun to stop and talk to him along the way and get mm. more like backstory on him because that's all we're getting out of him we're not getting anything combat wise so <laughs> might, <laughs> might, have might as well get to some story yeah <laughs> um but the one i really liked was when you talked to orin and he tells a story about Jekt seeing his his first shoe puff. And he was drunk at the time and freaked out and struck the uh, shoe puff. And uh, they had to basically, like, give the, the shoe puff owner tons of stuff to be like, oh, you know, we're, we're so sorry. And uh, Oren makes a comment that's like, uh, Jack never drank again after that day but I see they're still using the same shoe puff. And you can look the shoe puff that you see over there has like a scar on it, mm. which is, which is a neat detail. And I like that a lot, but also again, like a thing that has been lightly touched on with both, you know, Titus's flashback. And now with Oren uh, telling this story is like, Jekt was a drunk. Mm. And um, that's, I, again, something that is really interesting the way they just kind of, mention it 
and don't dive deep into it. I, I, I know that eventually there will be more, and even in this section we get more, but... Uh, yeah, this is the part where I'm like, okay, I want to hear more about Jekt. Like, mm-hmm. this is an aspect of this game I really want to start hearing more of. And it's this is a cool, annoyingly missable section, yep. <laughs> which is weird. Um, and we also uh, can meet the Chocobo Knights, who we find out aren't going to bring their Chocobos across on the shoe puff because... That does seem like a logistical nightmare, putting a mm. bird on the back of an elephant. <laughs> so I I understand a little bit. And Titus even makes a comment that kind of like narrator Titus comes in and is like, wonder how Commander Lucille is doing right now or wonder how Captain Lucille is doing right now. Uh, kind of implying like that was the last time mm. they they see them. So um, yeah, neat little, neat little moment there. Um we we then meet the driver who's I, I'm glad you mentioned this and you looked this up, Ken. Uh, Hypello? Mm-hmm. Is it, um Hypelo. Um <laughs> uh, they're amphibian, they speak in English, but they do interesting choice of just giving these characters accents. Just you know, the first time you hear it, you're like this is weird because I feel like there have been accents in this game so far, specifically with Albed characters. Um, you like Waka. Well, I mean, so I was about to say we're, we're going to open the can of worms this week. That is why does Waka have an accent <laughs> when no one else on this does, but they were like, Oh, here's Waka and Waka is going to have a Caribbean Jamaican accents and that's that's what we're doing with this character for some reason um that's one thing and then the the high pillows just have this really really strange like you know they what impossible or something like that and um rides the shoe puff which is the one you you hear over and over again um it's it's weird you know i what do, you, what do you think about the accents in this I, game, Ken? Oh, sorry. You're, oh, sorry. You're, you're, oh, no, no, no. Actually, I am not yeah. Ken. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, uh, it, uh, it was kind of weird, like you said, because they try to make weird accents that are not, you know, specific to any existing real world country, but they still try to make it sound a little, you know, and like that part definitely is a little bit odd, though, I have to say, because... I just maybe it was it became an inside joke with me and my friend about how many times he says ride this the shoe puff in that specific <laughs> oh, yeah. voice, which I I don't know. I heard it so much that I just started to love it, but only that line. Mm-hmm. Um but you're right, like that he does say like impossible, but it's kinda cute and for some words, like that word and um the other times, yeah, you're like, I don't, I don't know what you're getting at. This is weird, but there are a couple of fun little cute words. But maybe that's just me. Like they're they're cert- like Hypello are certainly endearing. I will give them that. Like that is like yeah. Like there's like there's a character in Ten Two who I adore, who is like the barkeep of their ship, and he's Hypello, and it's like very like they're distinct. It's interesting that like they, I, I just don't really know that like the things that they're trying to do or like. Or, like, I guess I don't really know what they're trying to do by, like, imp- implementing these accents that don't seem to have, like, 
any real basis in anything. Like, and Waka is like one of the ones, especially it's like, like you said, like he's the only person in the place he lives in that speaks like that. I think Chapu actually might, in the times that we hear him speak. Um, but even then, like, okay, two people in that village spoke differently than everyone else without any clear cut reason as to why. Those divides can be like interesting. Like, if they're actually, they feel like calculated and like they actually mean something in the world, but a lot of the times it just kind of seems arbitrary in the way that this game implements things like that. I think it's it's interesting that in in Final Fantasy X we get a lot of visual diversity in terms of locales, but in terms of actually understanding why different cultures exist, why different traditions exist, um, it's a much weirder divide. Like Kilika and Besaid don't feel all that different from Luca outside the fact that there are like bigger buildings and bigger cities. But as far as the people that live there and the, the day to day, you know, there, I didn't feel like there was a stark divide outside of, they have better like houses that they live in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, it's really, once we start getting to Guado Salam that we get to see, okay, here's a completely different culture. Here are the Guado. This is how the Guado live. This is what the Guado do. And, that starts to be interesting, but I feel like, and it's been a while, but I feel like Ten Two started to actually delve more into right. the idea of what is this world and how does this world function and how do people live in this world in a way that Ten does not. And Ten, you know, you're you're going through it in passing, so I understand that aspect of it. But uh, maybe that's why I think Ten Two is is an interesting companion piece to Ten because you get to explore the world a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's also something to be said about, like, you are, in, in 10 specifically, like, you are experiencing a world that is, by design, fairly homogenous, like, culturally, and because that is, like, a system right. that has been made, put into place, and that is, so, like, when Tintu 2 yeah. is on, you know, the other side of that, like, it is able to branch out, and people, like, have, you know, these new identities and new, like, ways of understanding each other and the world around them, and so, like, I guess in, in that way, like, it makes sense textually, uh, for mm-hmm. that, it's for a lot of these places too. Even if like you know, architecture is different, like culturally, like they they might come off kind of samey because I think that's just mm-hmm. in keeping with like the world that they built here. Yeah, culture can't permeate because culture keeps getting destroyed in a cycle, and so mm-hmm. once that cycle ends, you know, theoretically, <laughs> then uh, you you can start to see how that stuff might change. Even over, you know, it's not even over a long course of time, but just knowing that the things they build won't be broken down again immediately by a giant evil sea monster um, can change the world. And mm. yeah, this this is this is me saying, I'm really interested to get around to 10 when we get to it because mm. there are aspects of this that I'm really interested in um, and, and, and interested in, in seeing branch out. Um, but yeah, the, the hypelos, whatever the hypelos are are fun, I guess. Um, as as we kind of go through the the moon flow, we also get a really fun section of. Uh, first off, Waka is like, "Hey, you know, look into the water, Titus, check it out. It's a Machina city. They they built it over the river, and it fell into the river because it was too heavy of a city." And I was sitting there thinking, like, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> that doesn't square out to me, but okay. Um, 
And and Waka, it's really funny, is like, you know what that means, right? He's kind of like trying to give a lesson to mm-hmm. Titus. Like, this is this is why you should listen to Yevon. And he's like, it's it's bad because it's bad Machina. And they, they thought they could defy the laws of nature. And Titus is like, he literally says... I don't think that's right, man. Like that's, that doesn't sound right. Um, and he, he points out Titus does that. Yevin kind of arbitrarily decides what's allowed and what's not, mm. uh, which Lulu finally then comments on is like, you know, it's war, you know, they're, they're worried about the war that broke out. Um, because when the cities all had Machina, they all waged war on each other. And they even like make, uh, like gestures towards uh, nuclear weapons or something similar to them, because she says like, you know, they believe that they had the ability to destroy the world if they wanted to. Um, and that's when sin showed up and then sin destroyed all the Machina cities. And for a thousand years since they've been dealing with all this. And uh, it's, it's interesting that you can even see Lulu start to question some of the, the Yevon stuff here. Um, and it's also interesting that this is taking place in like a group dynamic. Like everyone is talking about it in some mm-hmm. way. Um, but you know, having Titus actually push back on this stuff and then Waka being pushed on this leading to him being super racist about, um, all bed. Um, <laughs> um, he, I think it's after this this boss battle that we have here, but he says like he he calls them like sanded something or whatever, like just like basically does a slur right mm. there, and I was just like Jesus, walk <laughs> like Yuna's sitting right there, and it's it's obviously he does not know, but that doesn't make it okay, and mm. it's it's just a moment where we're like seeing him kind of reveal a lot of his own prejudices in a very blatant way that I, I again we, we were talking earlier about oh i you know remembering this game is actually pretty dark and stuff now i'm playing this game again i'm like man waka sucks <laughs> waka <laughs> is is not I, I i don't know if we're supposed to like waka i don't know if i like waka <laughs> like, mm. it's it's difficult um and, and i'm just gonna like gloss over the boss battle that happens here where um in albed person jumps out of the water uh and grabs yuna and jumps back in and then we have a little boss fight where titus and waka dive into the water and beat up this uh underwater machine that is holding yuna captive in what might be one of the goofiest ways that they have put that together in a while because she's just kind of standing there in her battle idol animation Mm. (laughs) and uh i think you can see the ways that 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 they managed to cobble that together because when the fight ends uh it it lists yuna as Mm. one of the characters that was in the combat uh which is really funny Mm. uh but that the fight is honestly probably the most boring boss fight we've had so far because there's not really any special mechanics outside of like the depth charges which you just guard against but you just kind of hit it over and over again until you win well you want to know you want you want something from uh how fucking long ago it was when I first played this game. Um, I got stuck on this boss, like, to the point where there was a friend of mine, like, I was in fifth grade at this time, um, a friend mm-hmm. of mine who was, like, a Final Fantasy, like, aficionado, and, like, his family, like, played through, like, all the number games at the time. And I was like, hey, here's my memory card. I don't know what's wrong, like, with, like, I don't know what I have to do here. Um, turns out I hadn't used my sphere grid once at that point. 
Um, oh my god. So I had gotten through everything <laughs> up to this point without using sphere grid. So like I was using all my characters at base stats and getting through all this shit. Like Operation Meehan, uh, Luca, you know, all of the... You're speed running. That's incredible. Well, I mean, it was mainly because I didn't know how to use a sphere grid. And like when they, you know, it, it seems simple to me now. But like at the time I was like, I don't know what this is. Like I, I had played Pokemon as, in terms of like mm. turn-based RPGs. Like characters just, just leveled up. That was the thing they did. And so like when I thought, I thought the... Uh, like, the number counter for spaces for the sphere grid, I thought that was just their level, and I thought it was whatever. But, like, not even registering that numbers were not going up, and, like, no- nothing was changing. Um, so, yeah, when he gave me my, mem- my memory card back, he was like, it's because you didn't use your sphere grid. And so, like, when I started back, the fight was over, and all my characters were suddenly leveled up. So, that's how I learned. That's why I was required to learn at the age of, like, fucking 11 or so uh, how to use a sphere grid. Incredible. Uh, yeah, we beat it up, and then we climb back onto the shoe puff, and Waka just goes off about Albed again, and and Tita ends up having to kind of be like, hey, you know, calm down. Like we're just, it's no use complaining. And and Yuna kind of mouths a thank you to to Titus for defusing the situation. Uh, but yeah, um, boy, Waka just goes off here in a way that just, mm, mm. I don't know. Which is gonna make Ashley, what's coming up like very ironic, but yeah. Before we get there, like Ashley, like how do you feel about Waka as a as a character? I mean, when I first played it, like I said, I was a kid. I was like, I don't know, he's kind of obnoxious. Whatever, he just talks a lot. And yet, I replayed it um, on Switch recently, and absolutely, I agree with these notes. Waka does another racism, and you're like, wow. <laughs> um, can you? stop <laughs> and then you know sometimes lulu like tells him to calm down and like i, I get that they want to address that but you're right it's interesting that it's one of the members of your main party is just a racist and mm-hmm. you have your protagonist like please stop <laughs> it's just so awkward um mm. gosh yeah he does love talking though so there is a lot of racism that he drops in there um he's he's not just like he doesn't just have shitty beliefs but like he's also the person that decides to just start talking while everyone's on the shoe puff and like i i like to imagine an alternate version of the scene where like he starts off and is like so the owl bed and everyone just kind of like rolls their eyes (laughs) a little bit and like shifts uncomfortably in their seats (laughs) yeah if they all had phones Um, that would be the time where everyone takes out their phone and just looks at it yeah Yeah. And, and like, even, I mean, to this point, though, like, I, I'm actually blanking on exactly when if they're going to have to, like, actively confront it. And I guess it's going to be when um truths come out. Because, like, a lot of the sort of um ways in which we are, not not even just we as teens, but, like, the, as much as the party, like, pushes against it, is usually just trying to, like, get him to just stop speaking as opposed to mm-hmm. actively confronting it. And I think that is going to be uh, complicated in a way by what we're about to... Uh, happen upon on the beach yeah yeah after we we land on the other shore and uh you know everyone's kind of doing their stuff so uh titus kind of walks on ahead and finds someone lying on the ground and surprise it's riku um riku shows up in a big fancy cutscene where uh this was kind of weird that she like finally takes off her 
gear that she's been wearing up to this point and is now wearing like the outfit that she will wear for the rest of the game. I always thought that was a weird thing that they just had like armor Riku and then normal Riku. <laughs> but um she's like, "Hey, what's up? Why'd you hit me?" And, you know, Tita's realizes, "Oh, you were piloting that Machina that we just fought underwater." Um, and Riku's like, chill, don't worry, it's not what you think. Anyways, what's up? And then the party shows up, and uh, th- this is a section, like, this is a part that feels very jarring, I think. Uh, and I- I- I'll get to why. So they, they, Riku is like, what's up? Hey, everyone. Tease is like, hey, this is my pal Riku. She helped me out when I first showed up. He almost drops the whole all bed thing. Uh, Waka attempts to make small talk uh, and fails miserably. <laughs> um, and then Yuna is like, you know, Yuna, Lulu, and Riku kind of go over to have uh, a girl's talk over to the side. Uh, and they talk for a little bit and then come back. And Yuna's like, hey, I want Riku to be my guardian. And uh, Oren, uh, you know, gives her a look over and is basically like, you know, look me in the eyes, show me your eyes. And that's when Oren obviously realizes that, hey, you know, Riku is all bed and probably connects a few other puzzle pieces <laughs> along the mm-hmm. way. Um, and he's just like, are you sh- are you certain? Like, are do you know like what this will mean? Are, are you okay with, you know, going forward with this? And Riku's just like a hundred percent on board. Mm. And he's like, okay, cool. And then everybody's like, yeah, great. And then <laughs> Tita's narrator voice is like, yeah, how did Waka never realize that, <laughs> that Riku was all bed, even though he's like horrendously racist towards all bed people, but like one is hanging out with him every day and never even notices it. Um, just, I love that little part. <laughs> it's a real good aside, but this part felt very rushed because obviously things we learn later will make it clear why Yuna went from zero to 100 on having Riku in the party Mm -hmm. and as a guardian and stuff. And immediately right off the bat, like we get to Guado Salam and and Riku is chummy with Yuna right away. And the way she like fits into the party happens very quick. It for a character that you get fairly far into the game, it feels like she melds with the group very fast but um, it did feel a little bit like, oh, this person just showed up and I thought there would be like some awkwardness or something. But no, Yuna's like right away 100%, which is obviously going to be explained why later, but we don't really know why right now. So mm. I, I don't know. It is it is weird. But I will also say that Riku is one of my favorite characters in this game. Mm. So uh, <laughs> it's it's all good. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, um, there were a couple things about this, this scene that mm-hmm. were interesting to me. Like, so this is something that I don't remember the game ever outwardly stating that like one of like the defining characteristics of an Albed is that they have like a spiral in their eye, like that, mm. like, and that's how Aaron like notices that you know that that Riku is Albed and kind of like puts the pieces together. But it is interesting that that's not something that Waka knows apparently, and like you know, granted, Waka might just like be a, a like i mean he is clearly ignorant because he is racist but so like i it does not surprise me that he is 
ignorant of like actual like the actual characteristics of people that he does not like um so that was interesting but i don't feel like the game ever went out of its way to like explain that like i don't, I don't need like a lore explanation as to why they spiralized but just like the explanation that they do is just not something that the game ever really said that i remembered um also, I feel like a lot of all bad characters we've seen at this point have been wearing like goggles. Yeah, they always wear yeah. goggles. I don't think you've ever seen another Albed's like eyes with like the spiral. Like I, I feel like Riku is the only Albed character that clearly mm. demonstrates that character. Because yeah, everybody is wearing like these crazy night vision goggles all the time. I'm trying to think back, like what Albed have we met at this point? We met um, Rin, but like I don't think yeah, we ever got yeah. like a good like close up. You didn't up. get a close up, no. Um, um, brother, and everyone else has been. Oh yeah, I, everyone else like wears got you know the the Blitzball team, all the like assassins and and kidnappers and stuff like that have all worn goggles and armor suits and stuff like that. Um, all yeah. of Riku's pals, uh, on the boat, like that's. Yeah, mm. no, at this point, we have not seen many all-bed without some form of, like, goggles on, so. And I wonder if that's, like, something, like, I mean, again, this is, like, this looks sort of, like, a underexplored parts of the lore, because, like, we know all-bed prejudice is, like, common in spirit to some extent, mm-hmm. and maybe, like, that is something, like, the goggles are, like, meant to obscure these things, but that also, like, is, seems to be so, like, I mean, it's, it's synonymous with, like, how a lot of them dress anyway, so, like, I don't know mm-hmm. if that, like, would accomplish anything of, like, hiding who they were or anything like that. Yeah, because um, I feel like it would just draw more attention to you if you right. were wearing these, like, high-tech goggles. It's like, nope, you can't see I'm all bad because I got these mm. really high-tech Machina goggles covering my face. <laughs> my goggles say I'm not all bad, you know? <laughs> a, lot, a lot of your questions are being answered by my goggles. So. Um, I, am, I am also looking at a close-up of Ren's face, and he does not have the the spiral in his eyes so maybe uh, that's just like a matter of like Riku has like a higher resolution like model yeah who knows we do uh get a tutorial on Riku's abilities as well though um which is weird they start introducing this idea of treasure chests and battles and I feel like they're there for a hot second and then basically disappear um I like in this area there was always a little chest in the battles but then once I got to the Thunder Plains, that basically disappeared, and I can't remember if that ever starts appearing again later um, in other areas, but I just don't remember it really being much of a thing uh, other than them just kind of incentivizing you to learn how Riku steals and can get items from things and then use her overdrive, which is the coolest overdrive in this game. Like by mm. far it's, it's a really, really cool idea. Um, being able to just mix any two items. And um, I, I feel like there's a thing in the game that tracks recipes and stuff that you've learned, but um, you know, by trial and error, but I always just had to keep a list near me mm. of, this is what I have tried and this is what I have got. And it starts you out with basically saying like, Hey, do two bomb cores, you know, that'll probably do something cool. And that, you know, teaches you just a really good damage one. And it does a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's a really cool mechanic that not only ends up becoming pretty critical. I think if you want to play this game and, and beat some of the tougher challenges and stuff that are in there, having her around helps, mm-hmm. but uh, 
like if you get deep into the speed running and optimizing of this game, Riku becomes critical to that mm-hmm. um, yeah. because she can mix certain items that will just make boss battles cakewalks and stuff. So yeah, it, it, she feels like I mean uh, among the party, like she and Kamari are the two characters that feel like quote unquote like gimmick characters. Like they have like a very specific ability mm-hmm. that works with very specific situations, but I feel like the game caters more to her in like her mm-hmm. usefulness than Kamari ever does. And so she's not always necessarily like a pillar of my strategy, but like there are more opportunities where I feel like I need to switch to Riku because she'll be very effective here. And so she's kind of like the, the sort of like in, in the middle for me in terms of like usefulness um, and in terms of like how often she's actually in my party. She's also one of the only underwater characters. Yeah, so that is she, true. We, we now have a full underwater party, which is cool. Um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely do think it is mileage may vary cause she doesn't really get an assigned enemy type or well, whatever. She, I mean, she does, and this is not explained to us now, but like she, if you steal with, uh, if you steal Machina, uh, enemies, if you use it on them, uh, immediate. One oh, KO. right. Yeah. Right. I forgot that was even a thing in this game. Mm. Oh man. Final Fantasy 10. Good video game. Uh, Ashley. What do you think about Riku? I think she's pretty versatile. I mean, aside from mixing a lot of dangerous cocktails, I think she also doubles up as... She does healing stuff, too, which I think Mm -hmm. is really great Mm -hmm. if you're, you know, if Yuna's not around or if you're kind of in a bind with, um, I don't know, your MP or your items. I just feel like uh, that's kind of nice. Though I, I feel like when I was doing the trial and error, there was a lot of, like, you poisoned all your enemies. And I was like, cool, that's not what mm. I wanted, but I'll take it. Um, and I never wrote anything down because I was uh, insistent on being an idiot and just be like, oh, I'll remember <laughs> all of it. Um, but I don't know. I think after a while you get an idea of, you know, what is going to do what. Um, but yeah, she's really cool. I did love so much the, yeah, the stealing from the Machina just... Yeah, that made battles so fast. So mm-hmm. I think yeah. she also, yeah, there are definitely periods like that where she's a must-have, but otherwise I feel like she's pretty flexible. I don't know if she was always in my core party, but if mm. she was, like, it wasn't a pro- like as much of a problem as Kimari. Sorry, Kimari. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe I'm the weirdo just because I had a massive childhood crush on Riku and so was always putting her in my oh, party. Oh, yeah. But I loved her more than Yuna when it came out at the time. Like, she was my favorite, favorite character. She's yeah. just, I don't know. She's just funny. She's good comic relief. She's cute. Mm-hmm. She's pretty talented, you know? She has some really good moments that I feel like I'm I'm enjoying more now playing through it again. Um, coming up here in Guado Salam as well, where you, she starts out as kind of being this comic relief in a way but the way that she immediately starts to care for yuna and provides like you know, lulu kind of has the big sister role uh for for yuna but riku feels like an actual friend for yuna that um is you know right they confide can confide in each other can support each other and um it's some really nice moments in in right. this upcoming section as Yuna starts to deal with some stuff because we are heading into Guado Salam. Well, and just like a, where, one last note on Riku about yes, why I think that yeah. she's uh, she, she's like mm-hmm. one of my characters in this game. Um, she is also the only person in the party that is like marginalized by the same systems that all these other characters thrive in. Mm. Um, 
And so, like, it's going to even something in Guadalajara, like, she doesn't want to go into the far plane because she does not feel like, like, that, that is not, like, the idea of it does not resonate with her in the same way it does everyone else. Mm, and mm-hmm. um, that's, I mean, a lot of these sort of uh, inner conflicts beyond, beyond, like, you know, beyond the actual pilgrimage and, like, what that entails, just, like, the conflict of, like, having a character that does not either bow, like, bow down to these systems in the way that, like, Waka does, but is also, like, actively against it in a way mm-hmm. that, like, she can't necessarily express right now because, like, the secret's not out. But, um, she, like, Tius can question things just by, like, asking a question, but, like, Riku's the one that can be like, hey, this is bullshit because of this. And because mm-hmm. she's been on the receiving end of what these things entail in a way that nobody else has ever had to deal with and brings, like, a lot of really great perspective to the world, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think there there's some parts in in Guado Salam that they, they do a really good job of, I, I mentioned earlier that they very quickly take Riku from being this new introduction that only Titus knows to being like a fully fledged party member. But I think they take some big leaps uh, that pay off that get her there that, that quickly move her from being, Oh, this, this character's tagging along now. It's like, no, she feels like she is part of the group dynamic mm. uh, very quickly. Um, some big leaps that I think pay off very well. Um, we head into Guado Salam, home of the Guado, uh, which is inside a cave. I, I always thought it was kind of like a tree, but I guess cave makes more sense. Um, I've, Guado Salam, I feel, is like an area that I didn't really have a good sense of what it was if that makes sense like like most of the cities and and areas in this game you kind of get you know a view of them in the distance as you walk up to them and so you can kind of contextualize Mm. how large they are and and you know place them in the world but i felt like guadalajara specifically always had trouble with yes Um, hell yes i loved it so much it was so cool (laughs) it like reminded me of um like in Lord of the Rings, you know, when you go to the wood elves and everything is kind of like mm, big, yeah. hollowed out trees. And, you know, um, I don't know. I always thought Guado Salam was kind of like a big overgrown kind of like grove thing. And they've sort of done like an underground okay. tunnel slash, you know, maybe like yeah. in with the roots or something like that. That's how it always looked to me. Because there's just like roots everywhere. Roots and then mm-hmm. inexplicably like stained glass. I mean, it looked cool though. I thought it was pretty It cool. feels kind of dreamy yeah. in a way. Like mm-hmm. it feels, and, and obviously when we get to the far plane and stuff, like there's, they just kind of throw like sense of scale out the window and just say like, this is, it feels like a very dreamlike area. Um, oh, actually, and... oh, I'm looking at the, the wiki right now. It looks like we're all right. It is, it is described as a city inside an underground cavern where the walls and walkways are are the twisted roots of the tr- trees of the Moonflow's north bank and city that resembles an underground swamp. Oh, okay, cool. Um, but yeah, it's like, it, it feels like a very dreamlike landscape that plays with scale and plays with understanding of you know, like like not having the context of what this thing looks like and where it places is jarring, but in an interesting way. Like it's, uh, yeah. Well, we'll we'll talk more about that when we get to the far plane. But um, we we head in, uh, led in by uh, a dude named Tremel who is working for Seymour, and Seymour would like to see Yuna because, of course. Um, so after learning how to customize our equipment, which we already talked about from Riku, um. 
and she has a very funny line that's like, what would you do without me? And I'm like, yeah, no, Riku. You, I came you here roll. to unlock mechanics. For you. Uh-huh. Thank you, Riku. I can finally put sick uh, strength buffs on, on my sword. Um, we, we go into Seymour's mansion, essentially. And, of course, you know, the ominous music is playing and everyone's kind of standing around and talking, uh, looking at the place. Kimari doesn't like the vibes. Uh, Yuna's like, shut up, man. <laughs> uh, don't ruin this for me. <laughs> and, uh, Titus has a little bit of a Waka moment uh, saying all the Guado leaders look the same. You know, just kind of lets that one slip out there. Um, but uh, they mentioned that Seymour is half Guado, half human. Uh, his father just got married a human woman. Uh, and uh, we, we can talk to a few other folks in the area as well. Um, so Lulu kind of like walks us through some, some lore here. And, uh, as she's doing this big, you know, like, you know, we summoners always come through here. There's no temple, but it's on the way between Jose and Makalania. So it's still a very common stop for summoners. Uh, Titus is like, hey, you keep telling me stuff. Like, at this point, I didn't even ask anything. You're just telling me this. Are, are you starting to believe me about what I've been saying? And Lulu's like, look, there's a lot going on. I don't know. Uh, I Things could be happening that I don't fully comprehend, but maybe don't tell everyone. <laughs> like, don't run around just telling everyone you're from Xanarkand. That would cause a lot of problems for us. Uh but it was nice to see Lulu, especially like another relationship that surprisingly develops in Guadalajara is Lulu and Titus, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is cool up until they're like, oh, Titus can make a pass on Lulu in one dialogue prompt later on that just feels very uncharacteristic. Mm. <laughs> Not a fan of especially with how this story ends up panning out. I feel like the way they implemented that stuff with oh, you being interested in certain characters and stuff like that is weird. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Just like superfluous dialogue, he, RPG mechanics. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if it was just a thing that was, again, like Tales of Symphonia did this where you could build up your relationship with characters, but that was more like it just ended up affecting who comes to see you at a certain point in the story and you get a different dialogue scene or like Final Fantasy seven remake did. And obviously Final Fantasy seven, but uh, remake did this as well, where uh, different choices you had made throughout the story kind of result in different characters coming to, uh, you know, cheer you up during a certain point. And I think that stuff is cool, but I think the way that 10 does it where it's, um, yeah, the, the prompt I think is, you know, don't fall in love with Yuna or something like that. And you have the option of saying, okay, too late. Or, um, my eyes are more on you or something like that. Uh, and I was like, that's, that feels so not tedious to say, mm-hmm. to be like, also, actually, generally just cause like, yeah, woman is in mourning. Yeah. After you've just had a big conversation in the far plane about, you know, the passing of someone and after Titus himself has like suggested, Hey, why not Waka? Um, <laughs> we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little we, bit. But, we skipped over a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, so 
we're we're in the banquet area. We can move through this part pretty quick. We're in a banquet area, and um, Seymour. Well, first Tremel tells us like, hey, you know, Jiskel's dead. Seymour's father is dead. Um, Jiskel was the person who brought Yevon to Guado, um, but now a lot of the Guado look to Seymour as like the leader and uniting force of the Guado. Um, and God, <laughs> it's he Seymour like does this weird thing where he kind of like uses his sick VR room to show off <laughs> Xanarkand. I've never understood this cutscene to be so like he basically explains like these are the visions of the far plane. Like we are seeing uh what the past was like. And it's this big cutscene. And all I can think is that they just wanted to do this because it's a showcase of their technology yep. and how good their cutscenes look. Because otherwise it's just like you know, Seymour is the dude that bought an Oculus Quest and you, you went over to his house and every time you go, he's like, yo, yo, let's play something on my Oculus Quest. And you're like, nah, dude, I just want to like hang out and watch football or something. He's like, nah, man, I got this new VR experience. Check it out. Seymour <laughs> um, spent a lot of money on this sick far plane room and now he has to use it every time he has company. Um, like the, the second thing that he weird. shows us, it like makes more it sense makes in terms of like little bit what sense. he's trying yeah. to like illustrate, but it also like, kind of felt like it was an excuse to make us like see the visual representation of a person just like that's something that we've seen and we'll know in the back of our head later yeah so we we do the second thing we see is Unaleska, who is the first person to beat sin um and seymour says like but as you know um you know he didn't do it she didn't do it alone and then in comes lord zeon who's this i guess you know, the first guardian I would be the best way of saying it, but they're basically like lovers. And, uh, you know, it's implied that like the two of them teamed up and, you would not have been able to defeat sin without the help of Lord Zeon. And then Seymour like whispers something in Yuna's ear and she gets all flustered and shocked and, uh, is freaking out and then informs the party that Seymour has asked Yuna to marry him. Um, dun 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 <laughs> I just think that's kind like I know that that's what he said because that's what she said but really when you see that scene where he whispers something in her reaction like uh, it's 1000% he said do you want to see my dick like that's definitely <laughs> what like he, as soon as he whispers her, her her hands go to her mouth and she's like <gasps> and she like runs out of the room she's so flustered he definitely was like you want to see my after this and if, then if that would if this game would come out like now like that would be like a meme template like <laughs> no hail hydra or some shit like <laughs> yeah <laughs> he just whispered the lyrics to the whisper song in my ear <laughs> weird oh my god um, yeah you forgot about the whisper song didn't you <laughs> <sighs> um yeah it's seymour god gets so weird and then this whole plot line is I think it's one that ultimately ends up working because it's about Yuna kind of overcoming her own antagonist, but also like fighting her own battles. And I think the intrigue of what's going on and why is Yuna doing the things that she's been doing and, and all that, like that all is interesting, but Seymour sucks. Mm. <laughs> like, he's, he's a good character 
who I dislike, which is a testament to the writing of this character that they do such a good job of making him such a hateable villain uh, in, you know, in a time right now where, you know, I've been playing other modern RPGs. You know, I just finished Tales of Arise, a game I liked very, very much, but definitely had an antagonist problem where they could not set up very many villains outside the first third of that game. Uh, that felt as compelling as Seymour does. Seymour is a really good villain. And uh, yeah, he's doing a great job of just being scummy here. (laughs) Um, And obviously, you know, we as the players are supposed to be like, no, Tidus and Yuna, that's that's the way it's supposed to be and and all that. Um, But I think it, what I really like is that this starts some group, some group tension going on because everyone kind of has different takes on what they think Yuna should do. Uh, before we get to that, I, I do want to mention that Seymour asks Oren a very curious question. He says, why are you still here? And then apologizes and said, I'm sorry, you know, my nose is keen to the scent of the fire plane and, and walks off, uh, you know, put a pin in that, <laughs> mark that down for later. Um, but then we kind of have a, a, a gathering outside and everyone's like, oh my God, you, you know, what are you going to do? And that's when Lulu starts talking about, you know, the people might really like it. You know, Yuna is beloved. Seymour is seen as this uh, like leader who's trying to inspire change in the world. And it could be really big and it would give people something to talk about and be happy about. Waka is more cynical about it, says it's just fleeting. It's not going to last. Not like not like killing Sin would. Um, and, and Yuna even like, you know, insists that she still wants to continue her pilgrimage no matter what, um, which, you know, Riku suggests the idea of just quit the pilgrimage and get married. Uh, and, you know, Titus is kind of pondering this whole time and it's just like, oh, you know, why would you marry someone if you don't love them and all that? And (laughs) very, naive young summer child who does not understand how marriage could be used for more than just love. And, um, but it is nice that he is also a character that clearly cares more about Yuna doing something that will make her happy rather than something that will make Spira happy. Uh, which is, Hey, a growing part of that relationship is that Titus is like, Hey, it's, it's okay to want things for yourself. You don't have to sacrifice everything about yourself for, the sake of mm-hmm. Spira, uh, you can have things for yourself. Uh, I mean, it's also like the perspective that nobody else in the room is actively saying outright. Like, even though it might be some, that might be a concern that people have, it's just like everyone is talking about the political ramifications. And like, Tius doesn't seem to understand that generally. Like, he just doesn't understand like what the perk is. And if there's any mm-hmm. other reason other than does Yuna even like this man? Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, in, in that way, like his naivete about the, the state of this world was interesting to me just because it was him without like getting like seeing it so clearly despite not understanding the larger context of what's going on but like was able to like get to the heart of like the truth of the matter to him to like how would come off to him and how he feels Yuna should be looking at these things um it was mm-hmm. one of the times where like him not knowing I think like made him oddly enough like profound in a way yeah yeah and, and this is another part where I feel like, again, them not telling Titus what's up is like, you know, the, the subtle implication of, oh, you could quit the pilgrimage is 
you know, obviously like you could quit the pilgrimage and that's a good thing. Like it's, why would it be a good thing that she's not going to go fight sin anymore? Well, (laughs) um, yeah, again, it's, it's a lot, but, uh, we, we put a pin in that cause you basically like, I'm going to go talk to Braska. And at this point, like if you don't know what the far plane is, you're probably like, wait, what? Um, the, the party goes up to the far plane, which is just a little area tucked away in Guado Salam. That is a portal into basically the, the afterworld, the afterlife where the dead are sent during the sendings. And, uh, there's, you know, he even has like a vision of like, Oh, if there's ghosts there and stuff like that. Um, you know, Oren is like, I'm not going in there. I, I don't belong there. Uh, Riku comes up and tells him like, no, this, the dead don't live there. <laughs> like, this is not, that's not what's actually going on. It's basically just where pyreflies gather, uh, and the pyreflies in there will take the form of the memories of the dead. Uh, it's, it's kind of like, I like to call this the therapy room. All right. This is everyone's going in for a little bit of therapy. They're going to go in. They're going to see basically visions of their dead loved ones. And, it, you know, apparently a rule is that you can only see dead people in there. So if someone's not in there, you know, they're they're still alive somewhere. And if someone is in there, then they're dead. But um, Riku's like, no, nah, I'm not about that. I like my memories in my head. So I'm going to stay out here. Um and Antis is like, well, I'm not gonna skip that, so I'm gonna head in. And we get a really sick cutscene where we see this beautiful vista. It's very Destiny-like in a weird way. Yeah. <laughs> As someone who's been playing Destiny recently, um, <laughs> I was like, oh shit, we're about to do a raid. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's like Final Fantasy fourteen. Um, but uh, yeah, we everyone's kind of hanging around and talking to their different. Lulu is not talking to anyone. Notably, she's kind of standing off to the side, watching Waka talk to a vision of Chapu, who we finally get to see Chapu for the first time. That's cool. Um, he's just kind of Waka's going on to Chapu about how he quit Blitzball and and how Titus is cool and he gave Titus his sword, which all of a sudden Titus is holding the sword in the far plane <laughs> when he wasn't before, which is a very sudden jump where like almost Titus is surprised that he's holding the sword. Like he, he flinches, um, he flinches when he looks at his hand. Yeah. So that made me wonder if like the pyreflies turned into the sword or something, but mm. I was like, Oh, it, it was a weird little moment. But, um, we also have a conversation with Lulu where we talk about Chapu and, um, like Titus can kind of hint like, you know, you got to move on. You got to get past this guy. Come on. You know, he's, he's dead. You're not like find some other dudes. What about Waka? And Lulu's just like, what the fuck? (laughs) We just had the world's worst shoe puff ride with this guy. And you, you want to be like, why don't you hang out with Waka? Like, nah, nah. (laughs) Um, and Lulu actually gets a really sweet line here. The, you always said I look grumpy, but those were the happiest days of my life. I was like, Aw, Lulu, damn. That one really hit hard for me. I mean, because she, like, never, she doesn't ever seem happy, right? You never see her visibly happy, and she's so serious. So, like, for her to even admit that, I was like, oh, God, that hurts. And and then knowing, like, what, how her story pans out over the coming games and stuff, just Lulu never never got what she 
like truly deserves. I think what you know what what she has earned in being a good character to everyone, and then she ends up with the the story beats that she does is oh oh Lulu deserve deserve better. Can't wait till we get to ten two. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, um, yeah. Uh, but then we see Yuna talking to Braska and uh, her mother. And she's like, I've decided, you know, and and talks a little bit about when she was in Bevel, uh, which is when her father defeated Sin and everyone was happy and cheering and stuff. And she's like, I want to do that. Um, It's I got to do what everybody wants, not just what I want. Um, And so she's like, hey, try and call Jekt. And she's all excited because Jekt doesn't show up. And and Titus is like, yeah, uh, I know why. And Mm. I can't this is not an ideal time to tell you. So, um, but then, you know, kind of presses him like, why do you hate Jack so much? And, and he starts ruminating, which leads to his mother showing up, uh, in the far plane. And Titus finds this odd because she was never sent. Like the sending was never performed. So why is she here? And, you know, says, Oh, she must've accepted death while she was still alive. Uh, and we have, a flashback again to Jekt and Titus's mom again, never named that's suddenly bothering mm. me a lot. Now <laughs> the, the moms in this game don't get named because yeah. <laughs> I don't think we get Yuna's mom's no. name either. No. Or, or does Seymour's get names? Oh, I mean, like fuck. actual, I, actual look, names. I need to find that out. Cause that's a, uh... Nope. He, she does not have a name. Excellent. <laughs> no, no named mothers. <laughs> This is somebody was watching a lot of Disney movies. That's, that's how I feel. Um, yeah. So we get a flashback to Jekt and Titus's mother hanging out. And Titus goes on this very Oedipal diatribe about, oh, you know, I loved mom, but whenever mom was around or whenever dad was around, mom didn't pay attention to me. And you get this like um, thing of, you know, checked and Titus's mom, obviously like caring a lot for each other. And, and Titus keeps calling for her and checked is like, you better go. If you don't, he's just going to keep crying. And, um, it's a weird, it's a weird flashback. It's a weird dynamic. Titus has some stuff going on. <laughs> he's got issues that he probably needs to spend some time in the far plane dealing with. <laughs> um, but they do compare it to like love birds. Um, which is this, this part was weird. So we, we get a flashback where Oren is there and he says something like, uh, if she dies, I don't know what I'll do or something like that. Like Oren says that. And it's a weird, weird note. I remember noting specifically that like Oren said that I was like, what do we even know what his relationship was like with Titus and Titus's mom while he was in, uh, Xanarkand and stuff like that. I, I don't know, but um, it gets compared to lovebirds that like, you know, one, one disappeared, one died. And so the other just kind of gives up to, to join them. Uh, yeah, the that's Orin's, about all the orange, you know, like my feeling on that initially was just, just like Oren was probably like in his promise to Jet was there for both of them to some capacity. Mm. And mm. that's like, if something happened to her, that feels like a personal failing to him. And that was just my reading on that. Yeah. I guess it, you know, it maybe eventually makes more sense as we learn, like, you know, he's Oren's probably grieving for what Jekt is going through and all that. And so like he finds 
some emotional stability in, you know, Jack's family and all that as he's taking care of them. And who knows? Um, back outside, you know, everyone's kind of getting together. It's like, okay, let's go tell Seymour that Eunice made her decision. But then Lord Jiskel's spirit starts like creepy crawling its way out of the far plane, which is like, everyone's a little too calm for what is happening. Like again, people are freaking out, but not freaking out enough in my opinion that they're like, Oh, ghosts can walk out of the far plane. That should be a much more upsetting sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and as everyone's like, you know, freaking send this ghost. It's freaking us all out. Let's go send him. Um, as, as he gets sent, um, Oren kind of starts to freak out and collapse as well. Uh, put a pin in that. <laughs> and, uh, Jiskel drops a sphere, which Yuna picks up. And, you know, as the group is leaving, they kind of hypothesize that um, something must have happened uh, when Jiskel died. Like something bad must have happened. And that's why his spirit had to come back. And he was trying to reach out in some way. Um, and Oren mentions like he died an unclean death which is an interesting way to phrase that. Um, but Oren is also like, hey, Jiskel is the Guado's problem, not Yuna's. Like, he says that specifically to Yuna. Um, anyways, we, we, we now get our aside. Where Yuna goes in to wait for Seymour to tell Seymour her decision, and we can have our little weird conversation with Lulu where we can be like, yo, what up, Lulu? <laughs> um, what, what did you pick out of curiosity, Ken? What did you, what did you pick? And the uh, when she it, asked, when she says not to fall in love with Yuna, yeah, I ended up saying okay instead of like the cheeky like too late because like I was just that felt appropriate more like a more appropriate to like yeah. I I because I, I felt like at this point he was just at least understanding there is gravity to the situation that he does not need to be like this smart ass fucking punk that he was. 10 hours of gameplay ago and I just that was the choice that just felt most in line with what was going on yeah like mm, it's I picked too late and felt weird about it because I was like oh you know Titus is going to be like that sounds like something he would say but also like it does feel his character is growing this this whole section again it just feels weird because you don't even hear Titus say the thing that you pick mm-hmm. So again, it, this is not a game where you are regularly picking dialogue prompts and all that. So having that be a thing just feels strange. Arbitrary. I, yeah. Um, but then we get informed by Shalinda that uh, Seymour is going to the Makalania Temple. You know, super weird that Jiskel's ghost appears and Seymour just pieces the <laughs> fuck out. <laughs> it's like, well, I got to go to the temple. I'll see y'all later. Um, so yeah. Um, they have one of the weirdest jokes that final fantasy 10 does in the entirety of the game where Titus runs up is like, yeah, you know, Seymour's not here. He's going to the Macarena temple. And I think it was Oren corrects him as like Makalania temple. <laughs> And then Titus goes, I? <laughs> and the first time I heard this, the, the first time I, when I was playing this last night for this podcast, I was like, did they really just fucking make a Macarena joke in a Final Fantasy game? And 
I am. So if you are listening to this, if somehow one of the people who worked on the localization of Final Fantasy X for North America, I need to know more about this line. I need to know more about what, like, like what was, it can't have been a Macarena joke in, in Japanese. Like that seems a bit like, was it, was it the same joke that they just directly translated over or was it, Oh, Titus is supposed to make a joke about the name of Makalania temple and getting it wrong or incorrects him. And then Titus says something funny, or was it just someone decided that they were going to insert a joke into the scene that is otherwise fairly serious. <laughs> and they're like, what if we just had a joke about the Macarena in here in 2000 and was 2001? Um, uh, like, hold on. I'm looking it up now. And Japanese Titus mixes up Ma. He, he calls it Malakania. Like he gets Malacan. like switches the C and the L. But is there like but is the, that the Macarena joke? It's not there. So it's not like a joke that he reference accidentally like says a real world like references a real world pop song, and then does the I like in in the song like this is the weird. <laughs> Am I am I going crazy, Ashley? Am I going crazy? Is this weird? No, like, I, I think what happened. My guess is that the localization people kept calling it Macarena, and finally they're like, you know what? Just yeah, just throw just it in. Put, just put it in. Put there, it in right? the. Game. You know that everyone is thinking it. Just put it in there. <laughs> it's, I, mm, you know, I'm all. This is I'm marking that down for a future <laughs> story to hunt down. Is the oral history of Macarena Temple. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! It's oh, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> does Japanese Final Fantasy X feature the Macarena <laughs> from LegendsOfLocalization.com? Oh. Damn! Incredible. Uh, yeah. Sh- sh- shoutouts to LegendsOfLocalization.com. It appears they do have an article about this that you can go find out more about it. And God, what a weird, weird thing that I completely forgot was in this game. God. Uh, Final Fantasy X. Um, anyways, we're finally heading out to the Thunder Plains, the last area we're talking about here, and a, a pretty straightforward area. It's you know, we we get kind of the main mechanic of it, which is uh, dodging lightning strikes. Uh, and Riku d- does not like lightning; uh, not a fan. Uh, so that later becomes a thing that you know will make us have to stop at a in an inn so she can kind of calm down. Um, we have a weird thing where we can talk to Shalinda again and either say that Yuna is going to marry Seymour or isn't going to marry Seymour, which again, feels like a weird dialogue prompt. I don't remember what it even affects in the game, if it affects anything. Um, and we can also meet, uh, Miken, our, our awesome, smart guy who tells us all about the dude who built all the lightning rods so people could get across the thunder planes easily, who sadly died building the last lightning rod by getting struck by lightning. (laughs) I love an ironic death (laughs) in a video game. Um, But as we get halfway through this area and through the lightning that zapped my ass so many times, I don't think I dodged a single one. Uh, I, I was so bad at this. Um, Riku kind of starts to have a breakdown and is just like, hey, can we stop at the end? Can we rest for a while? And they do a funny bit where the group is kind of walking <laughs> away from Riku and she's like, no, let's stop. And then they keep walking and they're like, please stop. 
Um, and they finally decide to capitulate, wait for a little while. Um, Yuna heads into a room and is like, hey, I need to, to rest for a bit. Um, and then Titus decides to like peek a bit and sees that Yuna is watching a sphere with Jiskel on it. Uh, but she turns it off before we can find out anything. Um, Yuna is basically like, oh, it's, it's just a will. Don't worry about it. And like takes off. And then Waka comes in and is like, basically big brothers Titus and it's like oh is you know will tell us the decision when she's ready stop being weird about it which is like good advice but also I don't know Waka he's batting one for like 12 in this <laughs> section so <laughs> um Riku's still scared but kind of has to overcome it so decides to like you know just okay we're gonna get through the thunder planes we're gonna get out of there um a random passerby takes our picture, which is just weird. Paparazzi. I mean, obviously, yeah, we get paparazzi. What? Which is. Wait, wait, yeah, wait, wait. Yeah, some, Someone somebody takes... just shows up and takes Yuna's picture. I, I just find this really weird because that kind of implies. OK, so they have cameras in Spira. I OK, and then that's they where have I a was newspaper, going. But I thought they didn't have the news. They just so. They have camera. We've seen video cameras so far because we have seen like a broadcast news team in Luca uh, that was like interviewing Yuna. But I thought uh, that they was, didn't like... like Machina things. Isn't that a Machina thing? It's a camera. It's, 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 okay. one, of, it's one of the okay this is ones. Prop, this is propaganda Machina. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's state-owned propaganda <laughs> Machina. It's totally cool. <laughs> Um, but yeah, cameras did weird me out because I was like, oh, then I guess, you know, we've seen a lot of portraits and paintings, but we haven't really seen like photos. They've usually been those, those weird spheres, right? The, the vid spheres and all that, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think we eventually start to see more of, and this is kind of the start of that, but, um, we haven't seen a ton of up to this point. Yeah. They're definitely more of a pillar of like Tentu than they are of. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as Machina becomes more widespread and used and stuff. But yeah, just also, I love that there's no context and it feels like no one really even addresses it. Like <laughs> a dude just kind of like hauls ass. <laughs> and you have to imagine, you know, this poor stringer for some random, you know, newspaper or whatever. They're like, yeah, dude, we need you to uh, just go get a picture of Yuna. Cause we heard that there might be a marriage between her and Seymour. We don't got a picture on a file. So you just got to go find her. He's like, okay, man, you know, where's she at? Thunder Plains? <laughs> so this poor freelancer is like hauling his ass across the Thunder Plains, dodging lightning just so he can get one picture. He better get some fucking hazard pay. <laughs> yeah. He's going to get paid like a hundred bucks <laughs> at best. Pre-taxes. <laughs> oh, so sad. Oh. Shout outs to you, freelance photo guy, hustling, getting the job done getting paid um yeah so yuna stops in the middle of the lightning planes the thunder out planes, in the open. and yeah out in the open you might as well be holding her rod in the air uh as high as she can and being like i we need to talk we need to say something and oren's like hey we should probably do it under that covering over there <laughs> you know so we don't die <laughs> um she informs the group that she has decided to marry seymour 
Uh, she says it's for Spears' future and Yevon's unity, and is like that's you know for everyone. And Oren's like that's not a good enough reason. <laughs> um, and Lulu, being smart, is like, did the Jiskel stuff have something to do with that? Um, and and Titus mentions the spear. Everyone wants to see it, but Yuna says no. You don't get to see it. I gotta speak to Seymour. Like as long as we keep going, like we're going to talk to Seymour. And and, and Oren's like. You know, okay, as long as you stay on the pilgrimage, it's all good. Uh, Tita's obviously not happy. Um, Waka, surprisingly insightful, is like, um, are, are you getting married just so you can talk to Seymour? Like, is this... And, and later on, Oren kind of confirms that stuff, which we'll talk about next episode as well, but I did want to, like, point out here that, like, there is a little bit of conversation that happens when the group enters Makalania that touches on this, where... Uh, Oren has basically seen that Yuna obviously needs to say something or has some sort of contention with Seymour and that her accepting the marriage is part of her play to kind of figure out mm. what's going on. Um, and Titus is just too boneheaded to figure that out. <laughs> um, Riku, I loved this little scene with Riku where she runs up and like grabs Yuna's hands is like, hey, and then the the lightning like crackles out in the distance and she just turns his like quiet <laughs> like we are trying to have a conversation here <laughs> and then uh turns back to to yuna and is like um you know i i i want to help you like let us know if we can help you and i was just like man they do like this this scene initially i felt i was like wow they are really like if you, if you come into this and you don't know the relationship that you and Riku have that you learn of, you know, later on in the game, you're like, wow, this seems really familiar for mm-hmm. someone who just joined the party. But I think even if you don't know that stuff, it really solidifies like, Hey, Riku is someone who's going to care about Yuna mm-hmm. and is going to like, and, and she's not saying like, I think you should, or I think you shouldn't. She's like, how do I help you? Yep. Like you clearly are wrestling with something. You don't, Yuna doesn't seem like she's not perky. She's not like thrilled about the decision. She's, it it feels like she's, you know, deciding to undergo some great task and, and it's, it's got some weight to it. And so obviously she's struggling and Riku's like, how do I help you? How do Mm -hmm. I make this better for you? And I was like, damn, this is good. Mm -hmm. I, again, looking forward to 10 2 where Yuna and Riku get to have more of a, you know, a, a relationship that develops and, and mm-hmm. uh, be, be characters around each other. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah. My, I, what I like at this point about the Riku and your relationships, you can, you, like you said, everything, like she's clearly trying, she wants to help you in whatever way she can, but like, there's also like a sense of helplessness to Riku when she's trying to like be this person for you, because like, there is like a feeling of inevitability that like Riku, I mm-hmm. think kind of, communicates more than anybody else because like Riku is the, the one that's like the closest to saying it out loud at all times mm-hmm. and this was one of the points where like she felt like she was trying to protect someone from a system that she was already on the outside of anyway and didn't really know how it helps so she was just like if there is something that I can do please just say it and mm. yeah I, I appreciate like like they're doing so much with so little concrete context at this point with her um, where you can like sort of intimate a lot of these things, but it, there's also there's also something kind of refreshing about it that is it's not a relationship that is meant for Titus, like for him to like 
be under like completely understanding of or like and to get like this weird like lore dump that he's gotten with Waka, Lulu, and Shaku like has kind of like been in the center of that because his supposed uh like that he supposedly looks like Shaku, which I like looking at the two of them next to each other I was like I don't really feel like they did much to sell that uh how the, those two characters looked like looked like each other but yeah it was at, yeah. The, at the very least I like that this is like a relationship that she just is like very clearly on the outside of that is like it's not for him it's not, and thus by extension it is not for the player yet mm-hmm. yeah yeah Titus feels out of place here and I I kind of like how even though it feels like the group is solidifying and becoming this dynamic you're also seeing plays places in which Titus does not fit into that jigsaw puzzle um and and where he does you know where the, where the player is not the focus mm-hmm. um which again makes the dialogue prompts all the more weirder. But um, as, as we close it out, as we walk into Bacalania and, and we're like, okay, this is what we're dealing with now. Um, any like closing thoughts on this whole like conundrum, Ashley uh, on, on the Seymour marriage and the intrigue there. I know we're, there's a lot of plot points yet to discover when it comes to that, mm-hmm. but um, kind of like up to this point where Yuna is having to really wrestle with this idea and the, and the party is, is, um, trying to figure out the best way to help her in it. Like, how are you feeling well, about all this? I mean, first, I think it's bizarre that he asks her to marry him, and then he's like, bye. Like, she doesn't <laughs> even, like, respond, you know, yet. And he's just like, okay, I'm going to leave without telling you right after I propose to you. Um, <laughs> I, I know that I think Red he flag. does give her some time to, like, think it over, because she's clearly, like... Mm shocked after you know he asked if she wanted to see his dick and then get married but um well his dad came home you know he's like oh my dad's here i gotta go <laughs> um yeah I, I i do think that it was very telling um that everyone has such a different take on uh you know yuna's decision or her conundrum and mm-hmm. it, like i i think that with all of them predictably right with Arn of like, okay, well, as long as it doesn't interfere with your pilgrimage, like, fine, do whatever you want. But like you said with Riku, like, not only is she immediately, you know, familiar with Yuna in that, like, when she first sees her, she she calls her Yuni. Like, she has this nickname for her. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you're just like, how, okay, you guys clearly have some relationship there, but she seems to be, um, despite the, the most recent addition to the group, the only one who is asking, like, really asking Yuna, like, okay, but what do you want? Like, what if you just Mm -hmm. did this and you lived your life and you didn't have to do any of this? And, like, Yuna is always so caught up in how do I do stuff that is beyond me? Everything is, you know, bigger than me. It doesn't... I don't really matter. And I feel like, um, you know, Riku, besides... um, You know, I think at first, if, if you've never played the game, it kind of comes off as, like, this overly familiar almost Mm -hmm. like nosy person right who's just like all up in her business and asking like what are you gonna do about this guy and it's like well you know i think it is interesting that she plays such a sincere role with that you know and like Mm -hmm. she doesn't seem to get a lot of spotlight i know there are so many other guardians but like she really i think is one of the only ones that seems to like actively encourage yuna to think beyond that and kind of look mm-hmm. well what about you and like you said with with 10 too, like obviously their relationship develops more but um i think that's kind of the start or i i would hope that you know it's kind of 
the seed, at least for Yuna as she goes on this journey later, as she, like, you know, kind of becomes more confident in her own thoughts and feelings. Um, I think that's really great. But, yeah, the the whole Seymour situation, I mean, it does seem so mysterious. And, like, I mean, maybe it's just my brain, like, filling in the gaps. You know, she's, like, watching the sphere of Driscoll, and then she suddenly, like, turns it off you know it almost seems like there was something bad or naughty mm. about that about like oh geez <laughs> um maybe lord Jisco was just a, a, a huge perv maybe it was a pervy video i don't know oh, nobody God. <laughs> um i'm so sorry for putting that image in everybody's heads but here we are um first seymour and now his dad i mean <laughs> Yuna. you gotta close the dms <laughs> god and Yuna, she's too nice you know like she's just responding lol to everything like oh yeah okay <laughs> to like every creepy dm like oh yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. A, that's a funny joke yeah like totally <laughs> oh and then seymour's like okay yeah great oh uh, you seem to enjoy that joke do you want to get married um and obviously you know i i think that her naivete this like will I think for, for for you all and like, you know, the coming segments, it will kind of get blown wide open in um, a very dramatic way. I do mm. think it's kind of weird that, um, especially after Seymour proposed and all of that stuff is going on and everyone is weighing this heavily with her pilgrimage that like still nobody has talked to Titus. You know, still nobody's like, dude, okay, this is what's happening. All right, this is why... We're all being weird. And, like, it's just kind of funny that the, it seems like that's, like, the 20th time narrator Titus is like, and I had no idea what was going on. You know? It's, like, almost a cruel running joke at that point for him. But, right, yeah. I This is further enforcing my own theory that Orin is secretly in a time loop. And so... He hasn't said anything because he knows in the past Titus has learned the big secret too early and freaks out and it throws the whole thing off and then they can't uh, complete the journey. They can't finish the quest. And I this this is my ongoing theory throughout this podcast. You know what? Like it's it's not text, it's not real, but it's what I believe is that Orin is in a time loop and mm. he's he's trying to end the loop. <laughs> he's, yeah, I, he's death looping. Why else would he be so insistent that nobody tell Titus? You know, it's so weird. It's like, you know, you're at a party, except this is one long party, and, you know, all your friends are talking about the same story, and you want to get caught up, and they're like, oh, well, we'll tell you later. And they keep talking mm -hmm. about it, and you're like, oh, if you just told me, I, now I'm just standing here. This is very awkward. You're trying to glean information. You're like, just tell me what happened. And they're like, oh, no, no, another time, another time. Um, it, well, we, we will get one step closer to the truth on the next episode of Normandy FM when we head into Makalania Woods and discover what awaits us there. But until then... A uh, quick shout out and a reminder, as always, we are a retrospective podcast, Normandy FM. We have previously covered games like the Mass Effect series, Dragon Age, and The Last of Us. Now we are currently covering Final Fantasy X, Ten Two, and all its related works. Cannot wait to get to some of that post Ten Two stuff. I can wait. Um, we can just cancel the show after we get we finish Ten Two. It'll be fun. <laughs> um, so next next uh, entry will be Makalania. Uh, but as always, we are patreon.com slash normdfm. You can go there. You can support us. You can back us. Uh, any amount will get you into our backer discord where you can hang out and chat and share silly memes about the various games we have covered and are covering. 
at the next level, you will get every episode as soon as Ken is done editing them. And at the highest level, you get your name shouted out every week on the podcast. And this week, that list is Colin, just Colin, just the Wedge of Destiny, Mercedes Cluis, and Mir Randomly. Thank you all so much for contributing. Thank you for pitching in and keeping this thing going as we soldier on through Final Fantasy X for what is what's going to be a long time. I'm looking at this this schedule and, and we're going to be going clear into next year just on Final Fantasy X and then we'll be looking into ten two after that. But until then, Ashley, where can the folks at home find the things you do and the funny things you post on the internet? Uh, you can unfortunately go to twitter.com slash ITS. <laughs> Ashley O, like I T S A S H L E Y O H. It's it's Ashley. O. God, it's such a terrible. Every time I go into a podcast, I gotta say my handle. That's what it is. Um, yep, that's where I am. I'm sorry in advance if you check it. Uh, thank you, thank you for listening to me. Thank you for having me on. This was so much fun. I personally think your tweets are great. Just your like, tweets are good. Wow, Do not put you. your tweets down. I'm looking at your pin tweet right now. Oh, it's Lord. a very good pin tweet. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's the Final Fantasy VIII. It will never not be pinned. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's I, I have the same thing where I made a really good joke one time. And instead of having a professional pin tweet that has all my links and stuff, it's just the time that Hideo Kojima retweeted me <laughs> making a fraggle rock meme. <gasps> You know what? Like, I'm just going to ride that high the rest of my internet life. Yes. Uh, Yeah. No, you have have good tweets. You have good tweets. Do not put your tweets down. Thank you so much for coming on, though. It was was great to finally get you on and and talking about Final Fantasy X on here. Yes. Thank you for having me on the Seymour segment. I actually did have a lot to say about Seymour. I realized what a creep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> fair well, enough <laughs> well we'll we'll have we'll have even more to talk about with seymour in not that long so we will see you to talk even more creepy dude whispering in your ear at the party uh next time on normandy fm <laughs> <laughs>